death penalty for a ghost in China, an audio broadcast of the novella by Kim Cancer, copyright 2020, Meth Lab Press, for Wrenchway. I think the torso had escaped back out to the road. Perhaps was animated by a malevolent spirit, doing its bidding. Maybe I should have kept it in my apartment where it wasn't really hurting anyone, just being mischievous, mostly. Out on the road, in the same spot where the semi-truck had struck the deliverer man, there'd been a series of strange car accidents where cars' brakes failed or their lights would switch off at night cause collisions with other vehicles, often smashing into motorbikes. Eight people died in just one week. But I'd not personally seen any ghosts for a few days, and the drilling had cooled down to a barely audible hum. I'd been taking pills, so I wasn't dreaming and was far happier that way. Marco, who'd gotten heavy into Santeria, had taken to wearing traditional Cuban island clothing and an elaborate charm around his neck made of bird feathers, clamshells, and beads. Squinting his eyes and frowning, his fingers tapping on the table like oil derricks, he told me over breakfast that a lot of ghosts want to escape, rest in peace, but they can't because they're stuck in a space between hell and earth, so if they sell a soul, or souls, to a demon, the captured souls can take the ghost's place, and then the ghosts can escape and rest. That deliverer man, he's doing a demon's bidding, he's collected, sold, and bartered souls. He's already got eight. My mom said that'll be enough, likely. Still, don't ride a motorcycle or even a bicycle on the roads for now. From the window in the cafeteria, we looked outside, saw Rooster who was barefoot, wearing a Beijing bikini and jean shorts, despite the cold. He was hopping on a pogo stick, with a mad glint in his eyes, on his way to teach a class. Rooster really had been losing it. He'd had a bout of explosive diarrhea in one of his classes yesterday. Over the last week, he'd been complaining about the drilling sounds more than anyone, spazzing out about it online in the teacher WeChat group, posting floods of shit posts, along with random strange, outlandish outbursts, much of it gibberish. He'd been drinking too much, too, drunk in his classes, yelling and throwing textbooks and chalk at students. There was a running bet amongst us foreigners that he'd be the first teacher this term to be fired. Think it's safe to ride a pogo stick. I asked Marco, who only shuddered, stood up and walked away with a sullen expression, rubbing his rabbit's foot keychain. Shit. The accidents continued. Perhaps the torso didn't have enough souls. Or more was going on. Yesterday, a truck driving by the school had its cargo load escape. A bunch of loose barrels rolled out and struck a cleaner on the side of the road, bowling over crushing and killing the elderly woman instantly. Rooster had been hopping by on his pogo stick when he saw her mangled corpse, the crowd circled around her, snapping cell phone pics. She survived the great leap forward, the cultural revolution, only for this, 
Rooster said to me, standing on the front steps of our building. He was visibly shaken, his eyes glassy and red from crying. It was someone's mother, someone's grandma. She's not a statistic, shouted Rooster, at the rubbernecking gaggle of students walking by. The students glanced at him curiously, then hurried their pace to a gallop. Another unfortunate campus occurrence, the elevators in a teaching building froze, trapping a teacher, a Chinese teacher inside for over four hours. The school claimed it'd be fixed, but then the next week, in the same elevator, the elevator cable snapped, dropped like an anchor and two security guards inside the elevator died. The classes on the upper floor of the building were then moved to a lower floor. A couple days later, an escalator at the nearby subway station malfunctioned, sucking a school administrator down into the escalator's mechanical teeth inside, eating her alive. Marco was wearing ever more eccentric clothing, beads, would whisper chants, spells. I thought the school might say something to him about it. But maybe they just figured, since he was Cuban, it was his heritage and respected it. He wasn't involving any of the students in it or discussing it in his lectures. The school also liked taking photos of him in his brightly colored garb, his robes, and dashikis. The school was using his pictures on its website and in their brochures. Marco said he understood the ghosts. He knew. He swore the accidents were attributable to hungry and angry ghosts. That the ghosts were like the cockroaches in Rooster's apartment, that they'd been here before us, will be here after us. Marco said he'd been sleeping well and safe, though, since his Santeria skills and spells were improving by the day. He'd had a few scorpions in his apartment, which was worrying, but he had managed to kill them with a bug zapper, used them in a spell. Lemons into lemonade, dog, he'd growled. Man Bun Matty, the nine-year China vet, had a different opinion, wasn't convinced at all. He attributed the accidents, incidents to China's notoriously poor safety standards. Bribes of safety inspectors being rife. Half-assed work, construction done daily. But, for me, after having read several Stephen King novels, watched countless horror films, I thought to the part of the movie where the protagonist goes to the library or online to research the history of the area. With the school being built on the grounds of a former prison, it couldn't be a coincidence, it couldn't be mere negligence. I believed Marco, I believed in the ghosts, I believed in eschatology, and I had to know more. It was hard to find anything in English. But using translation software, I found much more on Chinese websites and I stumbled across a brief article about a young woman, only 24, and stunningly beautiful, who was executed, here, by firing squad. The gorgeous youth had been convicted of setting fire to her workplace, killing several people inside. The article had a picture of the field where she'd been shot. Recognizing the landscape, I looked up the area on Baidu maps, and sure enough, the prison, the jailhouse, 
the execution grounds, were indeed right here, where the campus now sits. And sifting through the search results on Baidu, I located a few old pictures of the prison, too. The jailhouse was right where I was sitting, where the teachers' living quarters were now located. This was the spot of the prison. It hit me like a sledgehammer to the head, seeing it on the map, seeing its picture, and recognizing the hills in the distance that I could see on a rare day that wasn't too smoggy. I wanted to learn more of the prisoners here, at this prison, and through the further reaches of my deep dive, I'd found that this had been a prison for the worst of offenders, many of whom were sentenced to die. I found case stories, articles about several violent offenders here who'd murdered their families or co-workers in fits of rage, and one infamous soldier who'd stolen a gun and gone on a shooting spree in a village nearby, as well as several arsonists, most of whom had attacked and set alight public buses and packed restaurants. All of the offenders had landed here, ended their days on this soil. There were intellectuals, political prisoners too, hundreds of them during the Cultural Revolution, those marked as revisionists. I read a story that said that so many intellectuals were executed that eventually soldiers started to throw the state enemies off the roof of the jailhouse so the army could ration ammunition. I'd been online for hours, digging farther and farther down into a death penalty rabbit hole. It was getting late, and although I'd taken a handful of Xanax, the gentle tyrant of sleep still hadn't opened his arms. So, I stayed awake, sat by the window, which was wet with breath, and I researched more about executions in China. I found that most executions in communist-era China, still to this day, are carried out by firing squad. Soldiers from the army serving as executioners. The condemned marched out to the execution ground. The condemned are made to kneel and receive a bullet to the back of the head by a member of the People's Armed Police, a paramilitary organization in China that's tasked with internal security, riot control, amongst other duties. Before the execution, the condemned has a finger pricked with a blade, presses a fingerprint in blood on the execution orders. Family members, victims aren't allowed to attend the executions. Nowadays the public isn't allowed to watch, either, though every so often pictures or video would leak out from a concealed smartphone or from a camera nearby. On Yuku, China's alternative to YouTube, I watched a couple pre-execution vids, showing gaggles of soldiers marching the condemned out to wherever they'd administer the ultimate punishment, usually a field or ravine. One of the condemned I saw was a drug dealer from Sichuan whose face looked made of stone as he was led out of a police van, his arms trussed behind his back. I felt a chill misting up my spine. Peering around, it was like I was living in a cemetery, like there were venomous ghosts around me. I guess anywhere you are in China, a land with 5,000 years of history, anywhere you are, like hundreds, thousands of years ago, there was someone there. Anywhere you are could have been a graveyard at one point, or the site of horrific murder, war, floods, fires, famines, or accidents. 
but to so consciously be living in this cemetery, this place pregnant in agony and death, to know that there were ghosts everywhere, that I was a guest in their home, and their plans, their designs, the ghosts' agenda, particularly the venomous ghosts, the angry ghosts, concerned me most. I decided to take another sleeping pill and listen to Sam Harris's meditation app. I find his voice soothing. It calms me. I closed my eyes, breathed deeply, and ignored the ghosts. I focused on Sam's slow cadence. His tone. Soon after he began speaking, I was finally able to pass out. Shiar. When I awoke to the next morning, a severed arm was floating in the air, running its long bony, frigid fingers through my hair. I sprung up and slapped wildly at its cold flesh, and it disappeared and vaporized into the damp chill of the room. I slapped myself in the face, told myself it was the dreams eating at me again, and I dressed, cleaned myself up, tried to focus on other things, like my lecture I'd deliver that afternoon. But it was tough to shake off those icy fingers in my hair and to not think of what I'd learned last night, those stories. Those teachers thrown off the roof of the building. Those people, their cases, the people they killed, and how scores here were knelt and shot in the back of the head. I wondered what thoughts must have gone through their minds as they were taking that final walk. I was having trouble really focusing on anything, though, my mind scattered. When I was brushing my teeth, I found that the severed arm was holding my toothbrush, brushing for me, and in the sink were globs of bloody teeth. I retched and grabbed the arm, the limb cold as a chunk of ice, and began to curse at it and beat it into the bathroom wall and spit foamy white toothpaste froth at it. Seconds later, it again disappeared, and I discovered I was slapping my toothbrush at the wall and that the sink was empty. I took my razor, cut a short slice from my forearm, dipped my finger in the running warm blood and wrote, on the bathroom wall, the Chinese character for mouth, hoping the severed arm would stick itself in there instead. When I got to the cafeteria, Marco was dressed in a long, flowing red robe with gold trim, wearing several sets of bright green bead necklaces and had a crown of thorns and chicken feathers on his head. He was drinking a cup of chicken blood mixed with herbs. Amiro, he said, offering me a sip. I politely declined. He continued, keeps the spirits away. I'm also making spirit dolls. I caught three evil spirits with the dolls, two murderers, and a thief. It's like luring out a snake, with the doll. I set it near my altar, I dance, chant and drum, and the spirits are sucked right into the doll, trapped in. Then I offer the dolls to Joan Quay. You still don't believe in Santeria, amigo. Marco, I don't know what I believe, I told him, rubbing my weary eyes, which were dry, full of sand. Marco stood up, lifted his tray. His eyes bulged. I've changed my name to Markoba. You can still call me Marco, but, just so you know, dog, I am a Markoba. He nodded at me, turned and walked off.
Two other foreign teachers sat down to the foreigner table and joined me. One was Fat Elvis, a Canadian, 30-ish dude, who earned the nickname because he looked like the fat version of Elvis, mutton chop sideburns and everything. Most days Fat Elvis stunk like body odor or liquor. We appreciated it more when, like today, it was liquor. The other guy, an older guy, I think was from Australia. His name I forgot. He had a bushy ponytail, but the front of his grey, brown, and black hair was balding, giving him a look sort of like a dead raccoon was hanging from the back of his head. Raccoon head wasn't looking too hot. Nightmares, he said, sitting down. Me also, Fat Elvis said, you, he asked, peering over at me, fixing his chopsticks in his hand, angling them at his breakfast dumplings. Not recently, I told them. I wasn't in the mood to discuss my pharmaceuticals. The ghost rumors are swirling round. I'm thinking Maradona has the right idea, said Raccoon Head, before he chomped into a red apple. Maradona? I asked, my eyebrow upturned. The rogue guy cunt, into voodoo, or bloody whatever, said Raccoon Head, making no attempt to cover his mouth as he loudly chewed. The filthy animal. Marco, or Marcoba, right, maybe we should join him for a ritual later at his house, but fuck a chicken or whatnot, said Fat Elvis. Fat Elvis had been my pick to be fired first. Guy was constantly perving on students. He had the look of a tree jumper. I've been having this nightmare of a ghost with a mouth like a burning torch. The ghost is missing an arm, and I'm missing an arm too. The ghost is pure raging, and after me, chasing me up a never-ending flight of twisting stairs, Raccoon Head lamented, his eyes bloodshot, one eye looking far bigger than the other. Fat Elvis belched loudly after sipping from his coke, spoke up, I'm thinking of doing a runner and ditching this place. I got an offer from a training center in Vietnam. I've not had a good night's sleep since I got here. And everything in my apartment keeps getting coated in this grayish dust, no matter how much it's cleaned. And yesterday morning, I coughed up blood. Raccoon Head looked off, made a hand gesture to someone off in the distance, then returned his gaze to us and spoke in a hushed voice, I'm starting to believe this shite. I'd like to find a local witch doctor, bring in a medium, or something like that, and find out what the ghosts are after. But none of the Chinese teachers will really talk to me. They are terribly, terribly rude here. My last school, in Dali, they'd invite us out for dinner, KTV. Here, they give me the evil eye look at me as if I just farted. Fat Elvis nodded in unspoken agreement. It might have been that the two of them looked like pedophiles, why none of the locals would talk to them, but I kept this to myself. I'd also noticed many of the locals to be gruff, uncommunicative, taciturn, but I'd not gotten too much evil eye. Maybe that was because I ironed my clothes, wore slacks, collared shirts to my classes, didn't dress in Lamb of God t-shirts or stained beer logo shirts like Raccoon Head or Fat Elvis. 
I excused myself, got up to take my leave, head off to class. Raccoon Head did have a point, though. I needed to keep learning more about the ghosts, understand them, see if there's a message to be deciphered. Maybe then we could do something about them. No longer be suppliant. Shusan. I'd been friendly with Jim, the teacher who'd told me of the school's history. He'd only mentioned it in passing, as we played basketball. I figured I should talk more with him. See what I could find out. Jim was a teacher who'd lived in America for a number of years, played college basketball there, then played pro ball in Australia. He spoke perfect English, with only the slightest trace of an accent. A soft-spoken, abnormally tall guy, he towered above most everyone, at 6'6", and had a strangely sloped Christina Ricci-sized forehead, cropped hair, and thin black eyes, one of the eyes was sleeping, didn't line up correctly with the other. Jim, a local, was originally from nearby the school. He was a nice fellow too. I'd played basketball with him several times. You could see him out balling every day on the basketball courts near the teacher's cafeteria. I decided to approach him after a game of hoops, ask him about the school's past. But I found he was reticent to talk, go into much detail, as it certainly isn't the best selling point for the school. After a bit of prodding, on the walk back to our building, he agreed to talk, speak to me over dinner. We met on a chilly evening, in the far corner of the cafeteria, over a plate of steaming hot pork dumplings and ice-cold bottles of Sprite. He looked around nervously as he talked and spoke in a quiet voice, only mouthing certain words. He said the school paid to have most of the history of the area wiped off the internet, though a few things would inevitably pop up in a deep dive, like they usually do with the Great Firewall which made me think of Bill Clinton having once said something to the effect of China's internet censorship efforts being like trying to pin a glob of jello to a wall using a hammer and nails. Jim said he'd seen the prison from afar, as a child, riding on his bicycle, and more personally, he'd heard first-hand stories about it, from his uncle, a retired prison guard, who'd worked there for a time. Jim sighed, stared at his dumplings as he talked and told me, my uncle was there. He saw tons of executions. He said that at first the executions didn't bother him, because they involved criminals. He saw the criminals as cockroaches, my uncle said, like, big human insects, parasites, stains on humanity. He never pulled the trigger, but he helped walk them to the grounds, tied up a few of them, their arms behind their backs, in special knots that prohibited movement. The only execution that bothered him was that of a guy he knew. A former classmate in middle school. They weren't close, they were more acquaintances than friends. The guy was a poor farmer, and a decent man. He was never in trouble. The farmer was on death row because he was convicted of killing a businesswoman, a woman he didn't even know. It was widely believed the real killer was the woman's husband, who was a terrible deadbeat, a wife-beater and violent drunk, 
there was scant evidence against this poor farmer. And my uncle heard first-hand whispers that the drunk used his wife's cash to bribe the cops. There was talk too, the farmer might have been paid to take the fall for the wife-beater, but then got cold feet, and it was too late. Pausing, Jim drew a deep breath, looked up towards the ceiling, grew pale, like he'd just seen the farmer's corpse. That one, the day of the execution, that haunted my uncle. My uncle said he has flashbacks to that morning, that the morning sky had this color of milk, and he'd see the farmer's bloodshot, tortured eyes, the expression of horror on his red face, his classmates crying, flailing, and pleading as they had to, literally, drag him out of the jail, like an animal, and pull him, kicking and screaming, to the grounds, two guards holding up his twisting body, for the... Ah, the poor guy, he was so upset, so afraid to die. My uncle retired early, after that. He said he still can't watch action movies or violent TV shows. So, it is true, many were killed in this place. Where the school is, that's where the prison stood. About where the soccer field and track, the jungle gym, that playground area for the kids, that's where the execution grounds were. All those kids out there running on the same spot where, well, you know. Jim paused, shook his head, took a swig of his Sprite, and went on. There's a brand new, more high-tech prison around 50 kilometers from here. My uncle said they're still using rifles to execute prisoners, however, only the violent offenders. They've been conducting more executions by lethal injection these days, though that's usually for businessmen convicted of graft or the drug dealers. It's fitting they'd take out the drug dealers that way, by lethal injection. There's a death van, where they conduct the lethal injections. It rides around, to the prisons, the death van. In the van, it's equipped with a gurney, needles, poisons. They bring the prisoners in there, stick them and juice them up, then, if he's in good health, they'll surgically remove a kidney or two, eyes, gums, a lung or a liver, place the organs in ice boxes, hand them off to the carrier, who takes the organs to the hospitals. The van can accommodate one put down by rifle, too. They'll wheel them in on a gurney for the surgery. After the surgery's finished, then another team comes, removes the body, brings the body out to another vehicle, drives the body out to the crematorium. So, is it true? That you can, uh, like, just buy an organ. I cut in and asked, wincing, and contorting my face as I spoke. Jim shifted in his seat, like he had hemorrhoids. He was visibly uncomfortable. He glanced around the room again, and he focused his attention back on me, and whispered, I'll say this. My aunt's friend bought a kidney from an executed prisoner. I think it was around $15,000. And, honestly, I don't think I have a problem with that. It's better the organ goes to someone who needs it. I know a lot of people in America or Australia might think it's terrible. But look at it from our point of view. 
We've got a billion people. How do you take care of a billion people? That murderer, whose kidney is now my aunt's friends, that prisoner redeemed himself, in a way, with the donation. I swallowed the dumpling I was eating. I dipped a little too much hot sauce on it, had to swig an extra gulp of Sprite, swish it around my mouth for a second. Then I asked Jim if he'd ever seen ghosts around the school. He guffawed and spoke up, truculently. Ghosts? Superstitions? No way. I don't believe in that hogwash. That stuff is for Westerners, old people, backwards people in Southeast Asia, and stupid movies. Anyone under 40 these days in China only believes in science. And me too, I only believe in science. I believe in myself. I respected his convictions, his beliefs. But I knew what I'd seen. And knowing for sure all the negative energy that this location had manifested, I was uneasy, felt a burn in my throat and a knot in my stomach that was more than the chilies. I went back to my apartment, swallowed a handful of Xanax. I had been upping my dose weekly for them to be efficacious. While I waited for them to kick in, I lay back in bed, scooped my phone up into my hands, stared down at it like a palm reader and read and explored more about the death penalty in China. China doesn't release official statistics regarding the number of death sentences that are carried out, so it's hard to know how many were executed per year. Being an American, I like to know death tolls, helps me to put things in perspective, I think. I opened my laptop, found it was already on and online, and playing a news report from an Australian TV channel. The report said there's over 2,000 executions per year in China and that the state will carry out the execution in two or three years, offering the convicted only one appeal. Sometimes the execution will be done faster if it's a particularly heinous, famous case, and like Jim was saying, they usually carry out the death penalty by firing squad, but many are also done these days by lethal injection. I heard a voice, a female voice, speak to me from the distance. It was speaking in Chinese, but I understood its words in English, it said, the soldiers shoot them in the head and then send their family a bill for the bullet. It's called the bullet fee, and ranges anywhere from five cents to four dollars. I looked around, but no one was there. I looked back to my laptop, found it was on an article about a young woman who'd been executed here, back in 1993. It was that jaw-droppingly beautiful woman, the murderess, I'd seen an article about before. The voice spoke again, sending chills down my spine. In the People's Republic of China, shooting as a method of execution takes two typical formats, either a pistol shot in the back of the head or neck or a shot by a rifle in either the back or the back of the head from behind. Officials won't let the relatives see the body. The officials only send the family the ashes, and only after they've paid the bullet fee. Jarring to my feet, barbs of fear ran through me, and I stood atop the bed and scanned around the room. A figure in the corner of the room, 
a silhouette of a young girl vanished into the darkness. My eyes heavy, a rush of vertigo overtook me, exorcised my fear. Everything in the room appeared as if in a fuzzy grayish cast, a dream within a dream. I plopped back down, languorously. My head felt like it weighed 100 tons. I rested into the soft pillows, felt as if I were floating in a warm ocean. I yawned in repose, a bag of wet bones, and I sank, drifted downwards. Sure. How about an app for buying a ghost? Manbun Matty asked the table. His hands were raw, red with scabs and rashes, but he was in good spirits, hyper this morning, decked out in a golden traditional Chinese button-up shirt and matching baggy gold pants and open-toe sandals. He obviously had no fear of the cold. Manbun was sipping on a thermos of civet coffee, this special coffee produced by civets, the animals responsible for the original SARS in 2003. I'd never seen it before, anywhere, the coffee, until I got to China. The stuff was made through a process where coffee beans would be fed to civets, would then be plucked from the animal's shit and manufactured into coffee. While it sounded horrendous, I'd tried a sip, on a dare, and was smitten. It was a favorite of all the foreign teachers, including myself, the coffee having an especially pungent, unique taste and strong caffeine kick. Manbun sat scrolling on his phone, tapping his foot. His teeth looked rotten and dirty, as if he hadn't flossed in a while. Or ever. Raccoon Head didn't appreciate Manbun's question about buying ghosts on apps and heatedly shot back, but could you really buy a ghost? Own it? Isn't that a form of supernatural slavery? In Laos, they sell protective spirits, Manbun said, didactically, a ghost that will keep you safe, bring you good luck. The more powerful the spirit, the higher the price. I was with a bird whose aunt knows a monk who deals in them. But I don't think there's an app for it. Laos is more of a developing country. The Laotians are commies too, right? Do they allow that, asked Fat Elvis, dark black bags hanging under his eyes. Today he stunk strongly of liquor. Manbun snorted and giggled, you see, they're different sorts of commies. Them and the Vietnamese. They're nicer, gentler communists. They're not as overbearing as the Chinese commies. Markoba coughed wildly, then caught his breath. For a second, I thought he was choking, that someone would have to do the Heimlich, and I didn't know how to, nor did I think anyone else here knew first aid. Today Markoba's face was sticky with sweat, his lips were chapped, and his eyes were terribly bloodshot. He was wearing a bright orange, dashiki type of shirt, matching genie pants, combat boots, and an enormous necklace made entirely of white bird feathers, like a boa. Manbun pursed his lips, raised an eyebrow at Markoba. Markoba sneered at Manbun, the skin of his face constricted, and, voice rattling, he said, 
One reason for the overabundance of ghosts is that the Communist Party destroyed the local temples, shrines, and altars dedicated to ancestor worship and spirits. The temples were for placating, feeding the hungriest of ghosts. The party prohibited fireworks. The fireworks were for the ghosts. The party even abolished the ghost festival holiday, dog. They banned it. They let the ghosts loose, they antagonized them, and the spirits are running wild, like feral animals. Markoba cleared his throat, and then stood up, said something in Spanish and stomped off, chanting in bizarre rhythms. Leaving the cafeteria, several Chinese teachers said hello, smiled and waved to him. The teachers and students today were all dressed in PLA military uniforms. It must have been a military holiday, but the foreign teachers weren't told about it. They love Marco, don't they, Fat Elvis said, contemptuously, just look how all the teachers smile, wave to him. Ah, mate, it was like that with all foreigners, until a few years ago, lamented Manbun, used to be you couldn't walk down the street without people wanting to snap a photo with you practice their English and chat or even just wave and say hello and smile at you. Nowadays, most Chinese either ignore us, or look at us like shit on the bottom of their shoe. Marco, then? Is it the Cuban, communist connection thing? Crikey, the bloke's family fled the Cuban commies, sailed to Florida on a raft through shark-infested waters. Now here he is in China. I reckon that must be why he's so into the Santeria. He has to atone to his ancestors somehow. But the bloody Chinese sure do love him, for whatever reason, said Raccoon Head, who then slugged down a swig of Beiju from a flask. His eyes looked like they were full of liquid. Manbun wagged his finger, interjected, No, no, you don't understand. He's the perfect foreigner. His place of origin is communist. Plus, he's not white, so he's not seen as an American imperialist or an opium war asshole, a conqueror, or a colonizer cunt. But then he's not black, so the locals don't view him as a criminal or a rapist. You must have learned by now that the only black people the Chinese tend to like are the NBA basketball players. It's shite. None of my schools in China have hired black teachers, no matter how qualified they were. The only black people they like are the black people they can control on their TV or electronic devices. But, mate, him, he's tall, athletic, handsome, and his skin's the perfect shade of foreigner. He's the only foreigner really welcome here, these days, aside from the rich investors or famous athletes, LeBron James, or Steph Curry, or the celebrities who play footsie with the CCP. He's a beneficiary of Cuba's miscegenation and socio-political leanings, I chimed in, and the others just stared at me silently for a few seconds. How do you know they really like him? The whole country cries wolf. They lie so much, it's hard to know when they're telling the truth, posited Raccoon Head, his face contorting into a scowl. They let him wear those robes and dash ikis to class, said Fat Elvis, 
who I noticed was breaking out in terrible acne on his neck. I don't see how his attire vitiates his lectures. I would estimate that it only enhances the foreign teacher experience, I replied. Fed Elvis and the rest again only stared blankly at me. I was sensing a pattern. I took my leave and pondered the idea that conflicts and backstabbing between foreign teachers was common at international schools. With all these different people, different countries, and cultures represented, thrown into this fishbowl, it was inevitable. We'd see each other every day, in the morning, afternoon, evening, weekends. There was no avoiding your co-workers, no escape, no way to not bump into them somewhere. Especially, too, since we couldn't go out much to the city, since China had restricted movement, the places foreigners could go and stay, since the pandemic and even after. The rules that everyone had expected to be loosened up once the virus had subsided, they had in fact, remained, and some were even more stringent. Foreigners were required to register any address, with the local police, that we stayed at for more than 24 hours. We were made to show ID, undergo facial recognition checks, scan QR codes pretty much anywhere we went, and, despite these measures, still there were times we'd be refused entry to places, for no reason, simply told no why. It got quite tiring. Shanghai, wasn't so bad, but the smaller cities, like the one we were near, were difficult to navigate, travel in. There were constant police checks, questionings, passport inspections, random drug tests too. It gotten so bad that most of us foreigners simply stayed inside the campus grounds. In a way, the place was still a prison.